This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer-Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The case book is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is part seven, and in this lecture, we'll talk about judgment as a matter of law. So the judgment as a matter of law is one of many devices available to the judge to control the freedom of the jury. Many other devices available during and after trial, including rulings on evidence and the motion for new trial, also control jury freedom. This exercise deals only with judgment as a matter of law and its closely related relative, the binding instruction. It is probably the most important We sketch briefly some policy arguments for and against restricting jury freedom. Two principal arguments favor restricting jury freedom. First, without a method to take cases away from the jury, the court would be unable to dispose of frivolous cases prior to trial. For example, a person sues her neighbor, claiming the neighbor was rude to her. If the jury were totally free to decide issues of law and fact, the plaintiff would be entitled to a jury trial on the issue of whether being rude to one's neighbor is actionable. Or take a case in which the facts alleged in the complaint state a claim upon which relief can be granted, but no significant evidence supports the claim. For example, a person believes he is being poisoned by a neighbor, and so alleges in the complaint. The only evidence the plaintiff can produce is testimony that his neighbor said bad things about him. Obviously, there ought to be some way of preventing such cases from going to the jury. The normal jury would not even want to hear them. A second reason for restricting jury freedom is to prevent jury lawlessness. Were a jury allowed to decide cases on an ad hoc basis, the law would be both uncertain and inconsistent. Parties in like positions would not be treated alike, and the uncertainty would encourage litigation. A jury might decide to award damages because it was prejudiced against the defendant, even though no rule of law supported its decision. A sympathetic jury might decide to award damages to an injured person, even though no evidence connects 
the defendant to the injury. The judgment is a matter of law and the lesser power to grant a new trial when the verdict is against the weight of the evidence, provide a degree of control by the trial court, which itself is subject to control by a multi-judge appellate court. Now moving to the judgment as a matter of law and the directed verdict and JNOV. For hundreds of years, courts and lawyers used the devices of directed verdict and JNOV, that is judgment, NOV, or judgment, non-obstante veredicto. The only substantial difference between these two devices was the timing of the motion. The motion for directed verdict was made after the opponent had rested, or at the close of all the evidence. In either event, the motion was made before the case was given to the jury. The motion for judgment NOV was in effect a motion for directed verdict delayed until after the jury had returned its verdict. Hence, the party was asking the court to order entry of judgment in its favor, notwithstanding the jury's verdict in favor of the opponent. The terminology, although not the timing or purpose of the motions, changed for the federal courts in 1991. By amendment to Federal Rule 50, the directed verdict and JNOV motions are now the same motion, a motion for judgment as a matter of law. The idea is that the JNOV is actually a reserved motion for directed verdict. The common name was adopted to recognize that fact, and also to recognize that the directed verdict and the JNOV are really the same motion made at different stages of the proceeding. In federal practice, a motion for directed verdict had to be made at the close of all the evidence in order to preserve one's right to make the motion for judgment NOV. This requirement is preserved after the amendment. A motion for judgment is a matter of law. The old directed verdict must be made after the opposing party has been fully heard, typically at the close of all the evidence. In order for a party to renew the motion after the verdict is returned, that is the old JNOV. This requirement is rooted in the history of the right to jury trial. The timing of the motion for judgment as a matter of law gives the trial court the option of ruling either before or after the jury's verdict. A wise judge who is unsure about whether the motion should be granted prior to submission of the case to the jury may decide to wait until after the jury has returned its verdict. The jury may moot the decision by returning a verdict in favor of the proponent of the motion. Even when the jury returns a verdict against the proponent, the proponent will almost certainly move again for judgment as a matter of law later. Then the trial judge can grant the motion. The standard for granting a judgment as a matter of law before the case goes to the jury or a renewed judgment as a matter of law after the jury verdict is returned is necessarily the same, at least in theory. In practice, however, some judges require a more impressive showing for a judgment as a matter of law before the verdict 
than after the verdict. This is so because of the differing treatments on appeal and also because the judge may be reluctant to take a case from a jury that has sat through the entire trial. Stated generally, the question whether a judgment is a matter of law should be granted turns upon whether the jury could reasonably return a verdict in favor of the party opposing the motion. If no reasonable jury could find for that party on the basis of the evidence that has been presented to it, that is, reasonable minds could not differ, then the motion should be granted. As you will see later, this standard, though generally true, is in need of some qualification. Now moving to the evidence considered for judgment as a matter of law. We have said that the issue for the court on a motion for judgment as a matter of law is whether the jury could reasonably return a verdict for the party opposing the motion. This statement is a useful simplification of the standard. In most jurisdictions, however, it is not precisely correct unless qualified, because the governing law imposes limits upon the evidence that the court may consider in determining whether a finding for the opponent would be reasonable. No one questions the trial judge's authority to grant judgment when no evidence has been produced on the material issue or when so little evidence has been produced by the party bearing the burden of proof that even considering only the evidence in its favor and believing all of it, no reasonable jury could find in its favor. Moreover, there seems to be general agreement that a judge should grant judgment when the only evidence in favor of the party with the burden of proof is incredible on its face. That is, it is incredible even in the absence of impeachment of the testifying witness or contradiction by other witnesses. Standard law is that a judgment as a matter of law motion must be decided by the court without weighing credibility and granting all reasonable inferences to the party opposing the motion. A witness who testifies to facts not inherently incredible must be given full weight. Even a convicted perjurer's testimony may not be discounted. The typical situation is that the opponent of the motion has produced testimony that is not inherently incredible. In deciding whether to grant judgment, what evidence should the trial judge be allowed to consider? The judicial answers to this question can, if some variations are overlooked, be placed into three categories. First, the favorable evidence-only test. In determining whether a jury could reasonably find for the opponent of a judgment as a matter of law motion, the court should consider only the evidence favorable to the opponent, completely ignoring any unfavorable evidence. This test gives the jury power to believe or disbelieve any witness, subject, of course, to the qualification that the jury may not believe a witness whose testimony is incredible on its face. For example, the jury may believe the testimony of a convicted perjurer even if it is contradicted by the testimony of 20 other people. The testimony of the 20 people must be ignored by a judge ruling on the judgment as a matter of law motion 
because it is unfavorable to the opponent of the motion. Moreover, the jury may disbelieve the testimony of any witness, even if the witness has not been impeached or contradicted. Therefore, under this test, a court could not grant judgment in favor of a party bearing the burden of proof, since the jury might disbelieve all of that party's witnesses and find itself unpersuaded. This test gives the jury a great deal of power, yet does not completely destroy the function of the judgment as a matter of law. The court can still grant judgment on grounds that, even believing all the favorable testimony and ignoring all other testimony, a jury could not reasonably determine that the party with the burden of proof had established a case by a preponderance of the evidence. And two, the qualified favorable evidence test. In deciding whether the jury could reasonably return a verdict in favor of the opponent of a judgment as a matter of law motion, the court should consider only A, evidence favorable to the opponent, and B, evidence unfavorable to the opponent that is not contradicted by direct evidence and that cannot reasonably be disbelieved. All other evidence must be disregarded. This test allows the jury to believe any testimony that is not inherently incredible. However, this test deprives the jury of the power to disbelieve whomever it pleases. The testimony of the convicted perjurer can still be accepted, even though contradicted by 20 other people. The jury cannot disbelieve testimony that is not directly contradicted if it would be unreasonable to do so. Thus, this test permits granting judgment in favor of the party bearing the burden of proof. And finally, the third, the the all-the-evidence test. In deciding whether the jury could reasonably return a verdict in favor of the opponent of a judgment as a matter of law motion, the court should consider all the evidence, favorable or unfavorable, for both parties. This test gives the trial judge power to resolve conflicts in direct testimony and to determine whether the jury could reasonably believe or disbelieve witnesses. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.